Amen. Thank you, brother. Well, before kiddos are dismissed, I want to tell y'all about our new sermon series. Okay, so hold up just a minute here. Today we're going to be kicking off a new one in the book of Exodus, and we've titled it Wood in the Wilderness. Some of y'all are like, I think you spelled wood wrong. So no, it's, it's wood in the wilderness. So why Exodus and why, the, yeah, woo, why this subtitle? Well, as our pastor's hearts are heavy for the abnormally large amount of people at Antioch who are in a season of the wilderness, we would call it, hardships, difficulties that don't seem like there's an end in sight. We have looked to the book of Exodus where we see God rescuing his people from slavery and then immediately taking them where? The promised land? No, into the wilderness. And as upside down as it might seem, this is how God works. In fact, God says this of his people later in the book of Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her. You can translate that. Woo, draw her to myself and bring her into the wilderness to do so. And speak tenderly to her. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord through the wilderness. And so we believe that there is great purpose in the wilderness. We want to call people to let the wilderness do its work. We believe that the book of Exodus, which literally means the road out into the wilderness here, has much to say. And so at this time, with that said, Antioch kids, servants, you may be dismissed to go to your classes. We say to you, together church, you are sent. Young disciples, in order to help you track with the sermon today, there are guides right over here on the side table. I want to encourage you to go get one if you haven't already. This morning I want to invite you to open your Bibles with me to Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. Young disciples, you need to write down that passage. Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 21. That's on page 45, if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs. Today I'm going to be speaking of beauty and splendor. And I'm going to unpack that truth in two parts. The wording of which actually comes directly from Acts chapter 14, verse 22. We must enter the kingdom of God, that is the good life, through ease and strength. I wish through hardship and weakness. So with that said, please stand with me to honor the reading of God's word. And if you're not able to stand, please stand with us in your hearts. Again, today's passage is Exodus chapter 1 verses 1 through 21, I'll begin reading in verse 15. Church, hear the word of the Lord. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and you see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? 
The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Church, the Lord has spoken to us. Let's say this together. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So when it comes to the beauty and splendor of modern expressionist art, perhaps no one was more influential and successful than Vincent van Gogh. And as I share about him, some of his most famous paintings will be on the screen. You'll likely be familiar with some of them, but what you might not be familiar with is his tragic story. He actually grew up as a pastor's kid, who pursued being a preacher, evangelist, and missionary in his own right. But after being rejected by both the church and a woman he loved, he became solitary and started drawing with the aim to serve humanity through art. He especially desired to depict the poor and despised, and where others saw only weakness, he saw beauty. But after discovering his talent... He also grew in mental illness, and sadly, at the all-too-young age of 37, he took his own life. Van Gogh died virtually unknown, his work mostly rejected by society because it didn't fit the norm of that day. It was only after his death, beginning in the early 20th century, that he became appreciated and his fame grew, even as it still grows today. How strange it is that your life, by all appearances, could look like a complete tragedy when in reality it is actually bearing fruit and multiplying in a transcendent way. And such is the story not only of Van Gogh, but even more so of the people of Israel in the book of Exodus. Last we saw them at the end of our sermon series in Genesis. Y'all remember that last summer? It's been a year. The messy little family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had grown to about 70 people and then had moved to survive under the rule and care of Joseph in Egypt. And then interestingly, in the Hebrew, the book of Exodus simply begins with the word and, which shows how directly connected it is to the Genesis story. This is just another chapter in the first five books of the Bible, so to speak. In fact, after recounting the names of Israel's 12 sons, we read in verse 6, Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now this should sound familiar to us. Where have you heard this kind of language before? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Where's that from? Genesis chapter 1, right? The great mandate where God created the first man and woman in his image and then sent them to be fruitful and multiply as his representatives on the earth. Now it's been a few hundred years 
since the sons of Israel limped into Egypt. And it's been thousands of years since he gave that mandate in the Garden of Eden. But God has not forgotten his purposes for his people. He has blessed them and they have thrived. And they're ready now to become a kingdom. The question is, how will God accomplish that? And this brings us to our first answer from the passage. We must enter the kingdom of God, the good life, through hardship. Young disciples, you need that word, hardship. The first great hardship of God's people begins in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So the favor that God's people had enjoyed in Egypt is now suddenly and violently gone. The author of Exodus here introduces us to the greatest adversary of the story, a man that we only know by the general Egyptian term, Pharaoh. He has risen to power either not remembering Joseph, or remembering him, but could care less. His concern is with his own power and glory. And he sees the people of Israel as a threat to that power and glory. Therefore, he wants to contain and control them as their Lord. He is going to enslave them. Young disciples, this is the first hardship of Pharaoh on God's people. Slavery. But here's the problem with that. Here's the problem with him trying to be their Lord. They already have a Lord, don't they? And his will for them is not to contain nor control them, but to set them free to fill the earth with his glory. And so in opposing this great mandate, Pharaoh is opposing God himself. And this is the nature of fickle human governments. They are intended to be the sword of God, to rule with justice. But when they harm God's people, God takes it personally. And he will unsheathe his own sword in his time. But often not before there is great hardship. So we continue reading in verse 11. Therefore they, the Egyptians, set taskmasters over them, the Israelites, to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more that they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So this is one of the most common strategies of the ancient world, to enslave people with forced labor. And Egypt was expert in this practice. Like, how do you think the pyramids got there? It was this. And apparently that's how the cities of Pithom and Ramses got there. This kind of oppression would have been infuriating, humiliating. Like we don't have a category for this and thanks be to God for it. A disregard for the human dignity bestowed by God. And yet, look at what happened. The more oppression, the more multiplication. Like listen church. Human government cannot forever stop the purposes of God. It might be able to stomp them out or seemingly stomp them out for a season, but it cannot forever do so no matter how hard it tries. 
And my mind immediately goes to the parallels in the book of Acts. Over and over we are told there that the rulers sought to contain and control and oppress the early church. But what happened? The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Over and over it says in the book of Acts. And it's like the more that you crush God's people, the more that they multiply. Why is this a common principle in Christianity? Because the kingdom of God thrives on hardship. Humanity in rebellion against God always wants to serve and preserve itself. So to have a group of people who in the face of oppression joyfully serve God and others at the sacrifice of their own lives, it's compelling and God blesses it. The kingdom of God thrives on hardship like this. Which means God is not blessing this in verse 13. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now there's no way that you could translate this into English and it not sound weird. But here in the Hebrew is exactly how this verse reads. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel serve as servants. And made their lives bitter with hard service. And in all kinds of service in the field. In all their service they ruthlessly made them serve as servants. <laughs> Same word over and over. Why? Well, we've got to make a connection to a later part of the story. We're going to hear this multiple times, but I want to give you just one example from Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. There's not a period there. It's only a comma. That they may what? Serve me. There is a purpose in them being set free. From slavery. God wants to save his people from Egypt, not simply because of the slavery, but because he wants them to serve him. You see, at any place in our lives where we are serving something or someone other than God, we're enslaved to it. And God wants to set you free, not to be free from serving. Like, that is not true freedom, just to be able to do whatever you want, whenever you want to do it, and not serve the Lord or others. No, no. True freedom is to be set free to your original purpose, which is to serve God. It's the desire of your heart, even when it's hard. So, workers. Those of you who work, as long as you are bound to success in your work to prop up your identity and value as a person, you are enslaved. Parents, as long as the happiness of your children determines the busyness of your lives, you are enslaved. Youth. As long as you are in service to approving the culture's push for fluid sexuality 
and then embracing it for your own sexuality. You are enslaved. It has you. You must live up to it. And it is a ruthless taskmaster. It will take you down. It will make you be obedient to it. And yet you will not be able to live up to it fully. And it will crush you eventually. Only God is not a ruthless taskmaster. Only in him will you serve and find joy in serving. Fulfillment. But that doesn't mean that serving him or others will be easy, does it? It will, by design, be hard. Listen, if you do this, then you'll miss opportunities to advance at your work, probably. If you do this, your children will call you unfair, probably. If you do this, your peers will say you're a bigot, probably. But it is through hardship that we must enter the kingdom of God. The sacrifice of your own lives ultimately will be joyful and compelling. It will be fruitful and multiply, church, through hardship. That's the first part of this truth from Exodus 1. Here's the second. We must enter the kingdom of God through weakness. Young disciples, you need that word, weakness. In the first section of the passage, we saw Pharaoh's first plan to oppose God through slavery. And this section reveals his second plan to oppose God through genocide. Young disciples, you need to write down that word, genocide. You might need some help spelling it, but someone around you can do that. We read this beginning in verse 15. Then the king of Egypt <clears throat> said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiphrah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. So here we begin to see the extent to how much Pharaoh is a tyrant. He wants all the Jewish sons killed and killed by the Israelites themselves. And the idea here is that the next generation of boys would be wiped out completely. And then the girls, would, the girls allowed to be born would be absorbed as wives for the Egyptians. So you get that and what happens within a generation or two? No more people eradicated that's what genocide is and so in this way all of God's people would eventually disappear from the planet but here the author introduces us to two surprising heroines two Hebrew midwives Shifra and Puah names which can be translated and I love this beauty and splendor now, why is the author naming midwives, and why out of all of them, only two? Is it only two who are brave enough to oppose Pharaoh? Probably not, but I want to point out a couple of reasons as to why maybe he just mentioned these two specific midwives. First, giving specific names shows that this is historic, that this actually, literally happened. The people of God in the Old Testament who are reading the book of Exodus could go, you don't believe me? Go talk to Shifra. Like, let her tell you more about it. Or she's dead and gone. Talk to her, and, you know, talk to, the, to her daughters and sons or granddaughters. They'll tell you all about it. It's historically accurate. But the second thing is, 
the two names probably correspond with the earlier mention of the two cities. You remember Pithom and Ramses? They were the bulwarks raised up for the Egyptians, weren't they? But Shifra and Puah, they were the bulwarks raised up for the Israelites. And I'll show you what I mean in verse 17. But the midwives feared God, not Pharaoh, and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Y'all know what that means? That means that the midwives were already living in freedom. Even though they were oppressed. The freedom of serving God. Like, did this mean that they were free from hardship? No way. This was done at the risk of their lives. And yet they were free to do it because they feared God. Not man. And this is in direct disregard of a tyrant. The courage, the boldness here of these two women is amazing. Look at verse 18. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? He knew. He knew. This is the moment where you fall on your face before the most powerful person in the world and beg for your life and apologize or cast the blame on someone else. But instead, the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Wow. (laughs) Now, some people would say, well, they lied. Well, here's the thing. They do not deny it in order to save their lives. They don't deny it, do they? Right? What they do say is shrewd. You know that word shrewd? It's where Jesus talks about us being wise as serpents. Shrewd. And perhaps it is true that God has so blessed the women of Israel that their labor does go quickly. Maybe they're just saying what is reality. Regardless, here's the truth that we can draw from their courageous actions. That the fear of God expresses itself not in a preservation of self, but in the preservation of others. And namely, in this particular passage, that preservation of others is toward the unborn and the newborn. You see that? Here, our culture tyrannically despises the fear of God when it holds personal choice above the lives of unborn children. And in doing so, what is the culture saying to us? What's the message underneath saying, no, 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 choice is where it's at. Choice is the true way to value someone and let them have their way. When a, when a child comes along, that is, a, is an issue, is a problem. What is being said there is that the kingdom of God, the good life, is found in freedom from inconvenience and hardship. That's what it's saying. And on the authority of the word of God, in light of the fear of God, we reject that as a lie. We're saying here that the way into the good life is through hardship. It's through inconvenience. It will hurt to follow in the fear of God. And so we do. And in so doing, we don't seek to preserve ourselves or our convenience, but we seek to preserve the well-being of others at cost to ourselves. 
And so the midwives, they reject what our culture says. They reject what Pharaoh is saying. And they face near death because of it. How does God respond? Verse 20. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So young disciples, you need to write that down. How God rewarded the midwives was that he gave them families. This means that through hardship, they experienced the good life. Through hardship, the people of God bear fruit and multiply. And there it is again from Genesis 1. Do you see it? It's just coming over and over. God is being faithful to his people. And yet not only to them, but specifically to the midwives. They bear fruit. They multiply. And you have to understand, in this era especially, women who didn't have children were considered cursed. So the midwives would have been considered lower than men and lower than women. They were poor and despised. And on top of that, think about this. Their work was to deliver others the very thing that they were so painfully denied themselves. It's like a person who loves steak more than anyone on the planet. And yet you are a server at a restaurant, maybe the best steakhouse in the city. And over and over you're serving these, you know one pound porterhouses, but you never get to eat them yourself. That's what they're experiencing over and over in their lives. These poor women. And especially contrasted here with Pharaoh, they are the epitome of weakness. And yet, guess whose name is never mentioned in the entirety of the book of Exodus? Pharaoh. Remember earlier, it just said a new king had arisen. Historians don't even know which Pharaoh it was, according to the historic records. But whose names are mentioned? Shifra, Pua, who go down in history as beauty and splendor. Why? Why would God do it this way? Because God especially loves to work through people who their whole lives have been called nobodies. He loves it. Something about him. It says something about his character and what he sees and gives value to. In other words, we must enter the kingdom of God ourselves through weakness. Paul the apostle, who came from a background of strength and accomplishment, Later in his life, as an older Christian, was given by God what Paul would call a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. Why in the world would a good God give to a man like Paul something that is that questionable, right? That demonic. Three times, just like us, and we would do, Paul pleaded with God to take it away. But God responded to him, my grace is sufficient for you. What is enough for you in the midst of this torment is for me to give you my grace so that you are utterly, desperately, IV drip dependent on me. 
For my power is made perfect. It's put on display. Its fullness comes in strength. No, in weakness. Therefore, Paul makes this conclusion. I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, hey, I'm content with weaknesses, and hey, that's not enough. Let's throw in some more insults, hardships, persecutions, even calamities. The whole world falls apart. My life is in, you know, just total rubbish, and I'm content with that. I'm okay with that. I'm okay in the wilderness. For when I'm weak, that is when I'm strong. And Paul, as you know, would then go on to become the most fruitful missionary and theologian and author that the world has ever known. Through weakness! Friend, you may be asking, like, why am I in the wilderness? Why all this hardship and weakness? You might even be asking, like, God, where are you? Interestingly... There is another character who is almost entirely unmentioned in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Exodus. Do you know who it is? God. Almost entirely unmentioned. Why? Well, the only reason that scholars can come up with is that the author wanted to capture this sense. That when our lives are full of hardship and weakness, we assume God's not there. We assume that we have done something or left something undone that has displeased him. Therefore, he is no longer with us. And this oppression did not go away quickly for God's people. Therefore, they had to have felt this. And as we'll see, it all gets worse before it gets better. And I, I find myself saying this over and over to people in different circumstances as much as I say it to myself. Step into counseling to deal with broken parts of your story, and it'll get worse before it gets better. Step into conflict to deal with broken parts of a relationship, it'll probably get worse before it gets better. Step into ministry to deal with broken parts of the world, and I testify to you, it'll probably get worse before it gets better, okay? But that's not... It's not that there's something wrong with that. That doesn't mean God's not in it. In fact, he's probably more in it than in easier seasons of your life. When people are struggle busting so hard and it's just one thing after another, I'm like, I, just, I think God just really loves you. That's what I say to people. They're looking at me like, are you crazy? It's just the opposite. No, I think God is doing something with such great affection that is going to change you and make you more desperately dependent on his grace. And that is such a loving thing for him to do. He knows you want it. He knows you've asked for it. And so he's given it to you. Even though you would never choose this path yourself. Therefore, you would never draw near to him in the way that you will, but through these circumstances. And this is what I mean. He may be bringing the good life in a deeper way, causing you to be more fruitful and multiplying than you ever would have been otherwise. And so I am not telling you to like weakness or to pursue it. I'm telling you to see it in a transcendent way. Beyond what it looks like to what's really happening. Just like the story of Vincent Van Gogh. You might be 37 years old and feel like your life has amounted to nothing. Like him. 
But what if the whole time something has been coming from your life that will change the world? What if the struggle is actually producing a work of art? And listen, I know that that might sound trite in the face of real hardship and weakness. Let me list a few things that are kind of on the plate at Antioch Church. Broken marriage, lingering depression, physical infirmity, the suffering of loved ones, the sin of loved ones, battles with porn, battles with deconstruction, battles with homosexuality, miscarriage, loneliness, getting fired, not getting hired. Is that enough? Can we keep going, anybody? Right? We can go all day at this. There is a lot of wilderness in this little church. But I have a strong conviction that when the very worst things are happening, God's doing the very best things. I have a conviction of that because I see it in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He was the chosen son of God, the one who embodied perfectly all that the people of Israel failed to be. And yet he became the ultimate ruthlessly oppressed one. Like, yes, he too was made to carry heavy burdens, namely something called a cross. But we were more to him than merely taskmasters, saying, do this, do that, or you can't do this, or you can't do that. No, no, we laid upon him the sentence of death itself and made him carry the burdens of sin for the whole world. And yet consider the transcendent beauty of his struggle. His road out into the darkest wilderness of death became for us a way back into the Father's light and life. His sacrifice paid the death sentence for all rebels who would lay claim to it. When he cries out in regard to his suffering, it is finished. Like we cry out in regard to our slavery, what? It is finished. Set free. And now all who believe in that and cling to it as the grace that they need like an IV drip, they sing lyrics that go like this. Wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory, to splendor. And so that means when it comes to God giving birth to a new people, the church, Jesus Christ is the true midwife. He stands courageously on our behalf and says, I will not kill the sons, though they deserve it in our sin. I will not give over the daughters, though they deserve to be given over to the enemy. I will instead deliver them, not simply at the risk of his own life, but at the full cost of it. What a hero. It is through weakness that he wins the day and gains a family that will be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth even as it is still doing today. It was through weakness that he was then raised in power. Why was he raised in power? Why was the end not just hardship and weakness? Here's the message of hope for you. The end is not just hardship and weakness because Christ rose in power over it. Why? So that you might be given to power to bear your hardship. That's one of the reasons why he was raised 
from the dead. Also, that you might be given the power to embrace your weakness. To say with Paul, I'm content with it. I even delight in it because this is where I experience God's grace and his power flows out of me. Why was Jesus raised from the dead? That you may be given the power to be fruitful and multiply. Just in the way that he originally intended at the very beginning. And in order to remind you of the beauty and splendor that he is working through your weakness and hardship, he has given us this ordinance. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it. He gave it to his disciples. He said, this is my body, which is broken. Some hardship. There's some weakness for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup of wine and he said, this marks the new covenant in the shedding of my blood. And as often as you eat this bread and you drink from this cup, you're announcing the Lord's death until he returns. We're not just looking back. We're looking forward and we're proclaiming that he is coming again and there will be an end to this weakness and hardship forever. Our invitation this morning, if you're a baptized believer, whether or not you're a member of Antioch Church, is to come forward, to break off a piece of bread, to dip it into the juice, remembering what Christ has done for you and proclaiming in this act that he is coming again and that you hold to that conviction before the whole world without shame. There'll be gluten-free available over on this side. If you're here today and you're not yet a baptized believer, rather than taking this, we'll do nothing for you. Instead, take Christ himself. He's made himself available to you such that all you need to do is turn away from trying to be good enough on your own and instead put your full trust, your full dependence on his grace to save you, and it will save you. There'll be people in the back, people who are gifted in prayer, to pray for you for any need that you may have in your life. And in light of the things that we've talked about this morning and we're going to be talking about in Exodus, there's plenty enough weakness and hardship to be prayed for back there in that sacred space in the back. So come back and let us pray with you and for you. Let's pray. Father, we bow before you after hearing your word. Thank you so much for being a God who wouldn't just leave your people enslaved, but would see fit to save them from slavery in our case, to sin. And not just to save us, but to allow us to be able to serve you and serve others according to your original purpose for us. Lord, thank you for this church. It's a church that you, Lord Jesus, have delivered. You are the true midwife. And we thank you that we get to belong to you and belong to one another. And so, Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts as we respond in this moment in a tangible way. We're not just going to sit in our seats. We're not just going to reflect in our minds. We're going to stand to our feet and we're going to come forward and break off bread and dip it in juice. And we're going to take it into our body and swallow it. It's going to become part of, part of our body that you've given us. Lord, in this tangible way, may you remind us of your deep love for us displayed in the cross. 
and also your power over weakness and hardship such that you can leverage it right now in our lives for good and that one day you will take it away altogether and raise us from the dead just as the Lord Jesus has been raised from the dead. Thank you so much, Father. We commit this time to you and we pray over those, again, who are sitting on these steps, their names, Lord, and those who may be in our midst this morning or listening to a recording, we pray, Father, that you would draw them to yourself and that they would turn away from their sins and turn to you and be saved. This we pray in Jesus' name.